we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatments of animals. I mean, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, March the 3rd, 2017. I am your host, Allison Cole, and I am joined here today by Sinead Sanders. Hello. Elise Jacobson. Hi. And Mandy Lewis. Hello. Thank you all for coming today. Now, today's show is dedicated to International Women's Day, which takes place next week on March the 8th. International Women's Day is a time to recognize the social justice that we seek in equality of all genders. And because we are a show that investigates and educates on the social justice issue of animal rights, today we will start with a discussion on how we align our beliefs for women's rights alongside of those of the animals. Animal rights is a feminist issue, and we'll bring some of the aspects to the table to discuss that joins the two together. Then for our feature interview, we'll have acclaimed eco-feminist author and activist Carol J. Adams on the show. You may know her best from her book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, although she has written many books and articles on the subjects of vegetarianism, animal rights, domestic violence, and sexual abuse, tying together the links that lie between social justice issues such as feminism and animal rights. On today's show, she will be providing a wealth of information to explain these interconnections when it comes to the rights of women and the rights of animals and how their oppressions coincide. This interview is coming up in about 25 minutes, so please do stay tuned. But before we get to that, Sinead, I wanted to talk to you about a little event that you attended this week. It's actually a, a prelude to a subject that we'll be covering on next week's show, and it has to do with a new documentary film that is coming out by a Canadian female filmmaker who we've had on the show before. Can you please tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, last Monday, then, I got to meet with Liz Marshall with uh, along with a bunch of other awesome activists and change makers around uh, around town and around the country. Um, Anna Pippis invited us over to talk to Liz Marshall about her current film project, which is called Meet the Future. And it's a documentary about cultured meat, that is meat made in a lab. And uh, so the film is still in the process of being made, but we got an opportunity to discuss some of some of the issues around that, and uh, and some of the, you know some of the reasons and the motivations for people to create meat in a lab, which which of course you know people want to be able to eat meat without feeling bad about the harm caused to animals. And there's also, of course, the enormous environmental destruction involved with farming animals. And, uh, and so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There's, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff going on there. And a lot of people putting a lot of hours into creating this product. And, uh, and yeah, it's exciting. Liz is making this film about it. So uh, hopefully we'll see that coming together pretty soon. She's uh, she's still 
still working on the projects, um, looking for funding, all sorts of stuff like that. But uh, but it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like um, that could be a huge revolution in you know the way we produce food and the way we eat and or you know not even necessarily for people who are already vegan but um you know for people who feel like they would have a tough time giving up meat that would be Mm -hmm. huge yeah and that's something that we discussed for sure you know is is meat that is created in a lab and didn't require the you know mass slaughter of animals is that vegan and the answer is no they still use animals to create to create this product right now but uh, they're the people, I thought it was interesting that she said that the people who are working on this, the scientists and researchers, they are, they're ethically motivated. They aren't, you know, people who are just out to latch on to the next big money making thing, you know, <laughs> they're investing a lot of money into creating these more ethical or, you know, well, yeah, these, these options that involve less suffering and, yeah. uh, and it would definitely have a fraction of the environmental footprint, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, there's still there's still studies being done on that. Apparently, it's it's not exactly conclusive what kind of an environmental impact lab grown meat would have. But generally speaking, I mean, if you consider that a third of our land on this entire planet is taken up by animal agriculture, mm-hmm. then you can imagine the difference that it would make if we could just grow things like burgers in a, in a lab with tiny cells. We can have, oh, not burger trees in our backyards. Yeah. <laughs> we can just pick up like fruit. Yeah. So to, Sinead, to understand, like basically they make meat just, just a, a flesh big enough for people to consume it like it's not it doesn't it's not it doesn't turn into an animal or anything yeah yeah no it's it's not an animal (laughs) it's not yeah they're just growing there's there's no bones yeah there's Mm -hmm. no organs it's just there i saw a picture of it the other day it's just like it's like a hunk of flesh it's meat cells like tissue Mm -hmm. tissue yeah yeah and you know as a as a compassionate living show and an animal rights show then they're you know, you, there might be people who say, well, it's not a vegan product. Why would you want to make a movie about that? Why would you want to promote that? But the the biggest audience for this product would be people who are already eating meat. And uh-huh. and people, there are a lot of people eating meat and a lot of people who don't plan on stopping. So mm-hmm. if we can get them to switch to something that doesn't involve mass slaughter and uh, abuse and exploitation of animals and the environmental destruction as well, then that's a good thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> not a perfect yeah. solution, but it would be a big improvement for mm-hmm. sure. Well, thanks, Sinead, for sharing your experience. And I look forward to hearing more about this topic on next week's show. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You can say it. Use the F word. We say it live on the radio. Maybe you've heard. Mondays at noon, we go for an hour. We talk about culture, gender, race, class, and power. We're bringing sexy back under attack. Because it's about time, folks.
So as I mentioned before, today's show is dedicated to International Women's Day, which takes place on March the 8th. And on this day, we observe, learn, and educate on the issues surrounding the rights for women to be able to participate equally in society. But on this day as well, and all the time, we here at Animal Voices stand in solidarity for all those oppressed, be they human or non-human animals. The feminist movement is a social and political ideology that recognizes a dominant culture, just as the animal rights movement is. But before we go any further, I want to discuss with you all what your own takes on feminism are, because I think different people have their own interpretations on what it means for them to support feminist issues. And Elise, I'd like to ask you first, because I know you uh, self-identify as a feminist and you're a vegan, so I want to know what has informed your feminist ideals and what came first, feminism or veganism? Well, feminism definitely came first for me. I think that um, I've probably identified as a feminist since I was about 18. Um, You know, I always had sort of feminist tendencies, but I didn't really know anything about the issues when I was growing up and, um, you know, was raised in a very patriarchal sort of environment. And so wasn't really exposed to any of that. But um, when I was 18 in my first year of university, I saw my school's production of the vagina monologues and um that kind of was yeah if i had to like name one catalyst for um just opening my eyes to certain things and just getting you know uh yeah just getting on board with all that stuff i think that would probably be it um i laughed i cried i just related to so much of it um and so, yeah, I think from then on, I, I then just started reading. I started getting involved in, like, online discussion groups about feminism, meeting all sorts of women from all over the world and just learning about all these different issues that were connected to that. And um, and then later getting involved in feminist activism, getting involved in, you know, feminist groups in Vancouver and organizing feminist conferences even and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. And then, so, yeah, I was 18 then and I didn't become vegan until I was 26. So... Uh, yeah, there was a bit of a, a gap in there. Um, but yeah, in terms of informing my feminist ideals, I feel like, uh, you know, for me, it's been mostly about, um, like I've learned most of what I know about feminism from talking with other women and, um, even my own experiences, you know, I'm a survivor of multiple forms of male violence and I know a lot of like almost every woman I know is as well um so you know just just talking connecting with other women online and offline and um you know organizing with women and doing activism with women and even just reading um blogs and whatnot reading articles that women have written online about their experiences and about these the the philosophy of various branches of feminism and these issues that's really kind of informed my feminism and and where I am now. What about you, Mandy? You self-identify as a feminist, but you only recently became a vegan. Can you tell us about that in your journey to discovering veganism as a feminist? Yeah. So my story is kind of similar to yours in the sense that I came from like a very patriarchal family. Um, but I was always feminist. I didn't know the word, but you know, I played football on like the boys team in high school (laughs) was doing all the things that you know girls don't normally do so actually I think that having that exposure from a young age it it made it an easy transition to feminist and then um, later in life um, an easy transition to veganism but I think it it 
took a it took some time, mm-hmm. um, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that um, the groups are divided. To be honest with you, yeah. um, coming in late into the game, I I was I went vegetarian. Um, I would say like maybe five years ago, um, I stopped eating red meat when I was like 12 because I saw a cow crying or whatever. And I like promised my best friend that I wasn't going to eat cows anymore. And I didn't since I was 12. Right. This kid, good promises. But, (laughs) um, but yeah, but it, but up up until I would say I went straight, like I still kind of, I was cheating on, on, on feta to be honest with you because right. i'm greek so i've been cheating on feta <laughs> tofu feta <laughs> yeah. thank you yes i realize that so now but delicious. i had been cheating on it for quite some time until i put my hand on like a 1984 book and i said no more feta right. i have not <laughs> eaten feta, feta since so <laughs> there you go two for two <laughs> yeah, so far yeah, maybe so. but um but yeah so i came late to the game and and i think it was mainly because i became very very involved with feminism the deeper I got into my feminist ideologies and understandings and education, I got a lot closer to becoming more aware of the unjust um, rights of of animals. Mm-hmm. Like, and it go, it, you know, the more you open your eyes, the deeper you go. And so that's basically what happened for me. Yeah, and speaking of the ideologies of feminism, what I really relate to and identify with is the uh, the sub ideology called ecofeminism, which is what we'll be talking about with Carol later on the show. Carol J. Adams. The word ecofeminism first appeared in the early 1970s as part of the radical feminist movement that was appearing around the world to challenge patriarchal power. Ecofeminism is a dynamic political theory that identifies how oppressions are interconnected and. That's what we're going to talk about here on the show today. Yeah, it's. I think there are so many connections between, um, you know, the abuses perpetrated against animals, the way animals are exploited, and the way um, women have been, women and girls really have been abused and exploited throughout history, and still are, you know, on a global scale everywhere, including in our own backyard. Um, it's, you know, there are a lot of parallels drawn between um, how female animals have their reproductive systems used in um, in animal agriculture, dairy and eggs and um, and even, you know, animals being uh, basically used as birthing machines, you know, to art of being artificially inseminated to um, birth the next generation of animals. But, yeah, there are a lot of parallels between that and um and how, you know, women's or female reproductive systems have been exploited and abused. Hijacked, basically. Yeah, oh. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and speaking about just some of the ways that we see the, the sexual violation of animals, I wanted to talk about that because we're an animal rights show. And I wanted to start with a story that actually was, uh, I read an article this week by Carol J. Adams. Um, and here's the story for you. So meet Carly, not her real name. Carly was torn from her mother shortly after birth, and while her umbilical cord hung from her, was auctioned off. She lived a life of physical and social isolation until her captors felt she was sexually mature. She was immobilized by chains or with a specially designed containment device and impregnated with an insemination gun that was forcibly inserted into her uterus. After nine months, Carly gave birth and bent to caress her child. Once her milk came in, within 24 hours, her baby was taken from her. Sometimes the children are removed within 15 minutes of birth. Had they not been parted, Carly would have suckled her infant for at least six months. 
After their forced separation, Carly called for her baby for at least two weeks, looked for her, and cried for her. Carly is a cow used in the dairy industry. Mm-hmm. And Sinead, I know uh, you wanted to talk to us about hens. Yeah, yeah. Layer hens don't have it much better. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in the egg industry, uh, first we can mention how the males are of no use because they don't produce eggs. So they, at all hatcheries, you know, they're separated and they're ground up or just thrown in the trash or whatever. They're just not worth anything. And this happens on organic, free range, humane farms. And even the chicks sold to backyard chicken keepers also have their origins in these killing hatcheries. Um, the females, um, on the other hand, aren't, you know, you could call the males lucky for the fact that they are killed so early because the females are exploited and made to suffer for much longer. Um, in nature, chickens sit in trees, form close relationships with each other. They dust bathe. They walk around foraging for food most of the day. But um and like all birds, they only lay eggs during breeding season and only for the purpose of reproducing. But on egg farms, it's a very different story. They are crammed into cages, five to ten hens to each cage. On average, each hen has a space smaller than the size of an average piece of paper, smaller than an iPad, on which to live her entire life. And she's just an egg machine. She's She's psychologically frustrated because she can't build a nest or forage or she can't even turn around or stretch mm-hmm. her wings or um, or interact with other birds in any sort of um, healthy, natural way. Mm-hmm. In fact, they are th- the females, they have their beaks trimmed uh, after they're born they, and beaks are filled with nerve endings. This this hurts. They have their be- the ends of their beaks cut off. To keep them from pecking at each other in this close confinement, they, you know, they go crazy, they get mad, they peck mm-hmm. at each other, and they abuse each other. So instead of giving them more space, then egg farms typically just chop off their beaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and their toes a lot of the time, right? Their, yeah. Their claws. Yeah. yeah. So they, the, and they don't receive medical attention. They've got all sorts of problems because of the conditions that they live in, as well as the fact that they're producing way more eggs than is natural. They uh, in, in nature, they will produce 10 to 15 eggs out of the whole year, but mm. uh, farmers have now bred battery hens to lay up to 300 eggs per year, which causes all sorts of problems, calcium deficiencies, mm-hmm. um, uterine prolapse, the uterus will protrude out of her body from overuse. And uh, and after one to two years of this, when her body's too worn out to produce a profitable amount of eggs, she's taken out of her cage and killed. And their bodies are so worn out, they're not of any use to the meat industry. So most of the time, they're just thrown away or ground up and turned into dog food or something. Yeah. And this is all a result of exploitation of the reproductive systems mm-hmm. of female animals, or just even just even if you're not a feminist, if you have compassion, wouldn't you be against this? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think it is our responsibility as those who align ourselves with social justice issues, or even as those who align ourselves with having empathy and compassion to become aware of these issues happening in the world around us. And as Sinead and, and I just pointed out here, there are direct parallels between how 
animals are oppressed and how humans are oppressed. But I think it's really important to recognize the interconnections. I mean, Elise, for you, is that what is that part of what informs your veganism and feminism together and, and keeps them strong in solidarity with each other? Yeah, absolutely. I would say there's yeah, I, I definitely feel that there's a um, like you said, a connection between uh animal rights and women's rights and like we were talking about before just the the parallels between how um female animals are used and and how uh women and girls have been you know have been oppressed through most of history i think there's just it's hard not to see the parallels when you really look at these issues so and, and yeah. what do you think Sinead, about about having you know having your social justice beliefs all be in alignment with each other yeah, well, it's important. It uh, It's something that I kind of grew up with, you know, feminism and vegetarianism at the time and eventually veganism. It's just, you know, we all feel we're all sharing the planet together. We all feel exactly. and that ought to be recognized. Absolutely. I, I think we can recognize the parallels in of oppression, as we've spoken about, with the direct exploitation of the female reproductive system in humans and the exploitation of the female reproductive system universal in the animal agriculture industry and in recognizing and understanding what it's like to have basic rights taken away for you. It shouldn't be difficult to be able to stand in solidarity with all living beings because... As I've said on the show before, when others are oppressed, no one can be free. And I really think that we need to inform ourselves if we believe in social justice issue. It mm -hmm. can't be just we care. I care about human rights. I care about women's rights only. Mm -hmm. you, we just can't have such a narrow focus, right? It's so important to recognize that we are all interdependent and it cannot be ignored. And as in the oppression of women when considering basic feminist issues, the oppression of and dominance over animals is central to what we stand against in animal rights and should be vice versa. So that's all the time we have for our little discussion. Thank you for joining me today. And now we have some news. Mm -hmm. So this week was National Pig Day. And unfortunately, there was some unhappy news about pigs going around. Um, uh, some people might have heard of Pig, Pe Pig Beach in the Bahamas, an island yes. in the Bahamas has mm -hmm. this place called Pig Beach, where there's this colony of pigs and uh, tourists go and swim with them and uh, take pictures and feed them and stuff. And uh, and they think it's like this paradise for the pigs. It really isn't. Um, <laughs> they aren't native to the Caribbean. They they get sunburned. They, there's little vegetation on the island. They get hungry and they rely on food from tourists. And the government and local businesses just, they capitalize on that. And they say, come feed the pigs. And... Uh, and you know, it's a tourist they, site. It actually. is. So the pigs weren't there nor from they're native. No, no. They're not brought native. there for humans. They to were. Pet. Yeah, it's actually said to be a kind of mystery as to how they wound up there. But uh, there is one man who claims to have brought them there in the 90s. Um, but anyway, so seven of these pigs uh, showed up dead <laughs> this week. Um, and originally, the man who claims to have brought them to the island, he said he blamed tourists for their deaths. He said that he's seen people feeding them alcohol and yeah. stuff. 
And uh, and he said, yeah, you know, nobody's been watching them. I guess we should watch them now. But uh, but as it turns out, um, there was uh, they did an opt an autopsy and they found sand in the stomachs of these pigs. So tourists are, I guess, throwing the food on the sand and the pigs are no doubt ingesting the sand, which cannot be digested. So so seven of these pigs died. Fifteen of them still remain there. And uh, and these pigs, they get killed like they kill the, the adults and they eat them. <laughs> they, you know, it's funny you say that. It's like it's amazing that that made international news, seven pigs, but the, yet there's probably yeah. a lot more pigs. But, and I've also, yeah. actually, I've read that those pigs are actually called regularly to, yes. to keep down their populations mm-hmm. for the tourist wow. uh, spectacle. Yeah, there's no, there's no birth control and they want to have the babies there to attract the tourists. So they right. kill the adults. And so those 15 pigs that are remaining there are not in any great place either. And wow. uh, hopefully something can happen to help them. It's a good lesson, you know, always investigate, you know, any any tourist activity that involves animals. It's like there's so often just abuse and mm-hmm. shady stuff going on. You yeah. have to investigate before you support it. Yeah, always look at it critically. And yeah. if you feel sad for those pigs in the Bahamas, then do turn your attention to the pig suffering in North America yeah, in exactly farms. The you know, exactly. we've, they're uh, the same. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, needlessly harming animals sucks. We don't need to do it. We have other options. And Speaking of which, uh, in Victoria this week, BC's very first vegan butcher shop opened last Saturday in Victoria, offering yeah. things like burgers and sausages and deli stuff, all made entirely from plants. And uh, every day they're sold out. Yes, mm. yeah, they're called the Very Good Butchers, and they were on CTV last week because they were getting all this online criticism from carnists, meat eaters, saying like, "Oh, you know, you know, barf burgers and whatever." They hadn't even what opened yet. What does that yet. mean? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, then they opened, and on their opening weekend, they had more than a thousand customers just over the first two days. That's They've so been great. consistently sold out of things this week. But they say on their Facebook page they're working to restock, and they're gonna they're gonna produce five times as much product to wow. meet demand. So do go check them out. Uh, nice. They're at seventeen oh one Douglas Street in Victoria. You can find more info on their website, verygoodbutchers.com. We have time Excellent. for one more story. Yeah, so just really quickly, um, in a landmark decision, the Guatemalan Congress voted to approve legislation in Guatemala that will improve the lives of animals throughout the country. It is the first time that the legislative body presented this kind of bill submitted by Humane Society International and its local partners in 2016. So this bill, among its main provisions, um, or the law, it creates protections for wildlife animals used in research and companion animals. It bans animal testing for cosmetics, the use of animals in circuses, uh, dog fighting, including participation of spectators in this cruel activity, and establishes an official government platform to address animal welfare. So, um, yeah, and Humane Society International is expanding into Guatemala to work with their government to help implement the new law. So that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, that's similar to how they're trying to pass the cetacean law to be a a sort of non-human citizen in Ottawa, I believe. That's really exciting yeah. stuff. Yeah. We need, it's always we need good to Canada to step up as well. Thanks yeah. for the news. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO. 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories.
Our feature interview today is with Carol J. Adams, a renowned feminist, vegan advocate, activist, and independent scholar, and the author of numerous books, including *The Sexual Politics of Meat*, *The Pornography of Meat*, *Neither Man Nor Beast: Feminism and the Defense of Animals*, *Ecofeminism: Feminist Intersections with Other Animals and the Earth*, and many more. These books and others focus particularly on the links between the oppression of women and that of non-human animals. Carol has also written over a hundred articles in journals, books, magazines, and encyclopedias on vegetarianism, animal rights, domestic violence, and sexual abuse. She holds a Master's of Divinity from Yale University, and in the 1970s, she and her spouse started a hotline for battered women in upstate New York. Carol is also an author of books on living as a vegan, and she was inducted into the Animal Rights Hall of Fame in 2011. She is here today to speak to us for International Women's Day, which takes place on March the 8th. Hello, Carol, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hello, Allison. Nice to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today to speak with us about the interconnections between feminism and animal rights. This is an interview for people who may be only hearing about these connections for the first time. And of course, there is so much to share here. And you spent decades of your life working for feminist issues and educating the public on what it means to be an ecofeminist. So, to start, can you define the term ecofeminism for us as you speak about it in your books? And how does it play a role in the whole sphere of feminism itself? Ecofeminism is a position that says we can't understand environmental issues without having a feminist perspective, and we can't understand feminist issues without having an environmental perspective. So that to talk of one or the other without bringing a more comprehensive viewpoint is inadequate. Now, for someone like me, who some people might call an animal ecofeminist, I'm saying that the environment and feminism have to look specifically at the status of animals and how that relates to、uh, a feminist critique of society. Well, some people think that we can either be for the animals or for humanity, but not for both. There is a dualistic thinking between both of these ideas. But you say that the progressive feminist response eliminates this and allows us to reject a virtual hierarchy of humans above animals. Can you explain this idea of duality between animals and humans, and what does it mean to other an individual? So those are both very、um, sort of dense. Uh, questions or responses. So let's start with the first: this dualism between animals and humans. So we live in a culture that's highly dualistic, and that not just is dualistic, but it then、uh, sort of causes dualisms to interact. So, for instance, we have a dualism of humans over animals. Humans as being not animals, even though we are human animals. We have dualisms such as male, female, man, woman,、uh, white and、uh, people of color,、uh, straight and gay. Those are all dualisms that our culture, our dominant culture, wants to inscribe and perpetuate. And an ecofeminist perspective comes in and says these are problematic. These create an either-or. These create a, an idea that identity is fixed. It also implies. That there aren't 
relationships among us. So, for instance, anyone who says, and I know that many animal advocates hear this, that to advocate for animals is to betray humans or, you know, don't you care about the homeless and all. They've really got an inadequate understanding of the status of animals in our culture because the low status of animals allows any non-dominant human group to be compared to them and to have their exploitation intensified by saying they are animal-like. So the status of animals becomes a way of permitting dominance of some humans over others. The other thing is, is that there are many ways that our treatment of animals sort of imbricate themselves, sort of uh, move uh, like an underground stream throughout human oppression so that our attitudes towards um, uh, female animals who are impregnated against their will is often um, often echoes some of the attitudes about women and uh, reproductive choice. I see this especially in pharmaceutical ads for animal agriculture, in which female animals are positioned as though they're sexy babes wanting to, say, uh, bear one more sow for a a so-called pork producer. So that In that sense, the animal's oppression is intensified by women's oppression. And in the same way, women's oppression is intensified by comparing us or seeing us as like female animals. The the slang that talks about women as cows, old biddies, chicks, bitches, all of that slang is referring to female animals who have no control over their reproductive function. So the problem with a dualistic response that says we could either be for animals or be for humans is that its very presumption is flawed. And uh, finally, what I try to say to social justice people who haven't yet engaged with animal issues is I can be working for the homeless. I can be working against domestic violence as a vegan. Nothing stops me from doing all these things. Veganism isn't something that aligns me with just one group. Veganism is an act of compassion that I'm enacting through all my social justice work. And can you also speak about what it means to other an individual? What is othering? Othering an individual is objectifying an individual. So in the sexual politics of meat, I talk about three ways that we allow a a non-dominant being to be exploited. We objectify them by not seeing them as uh, individuals with their own needs and their own desires to live. We then fragment them so that we uh, don't see them as an entire body suffering. And then we consume them, either consume them literally as we do with animals or consume them visually as we do with women. Speaking of consuming animals 
literally, as you said, I, I did want to talk about meat, the term meat. We interact with animals daily if we eat them. However, the animal disappears. And then we say we are actually interacting with a form of food that we call meat. So I want to talk about the word meat and how when we talk about meat eating in our culture, it normalizes the eating of dead bodies. And what are these once living animals reduced to when they go from living sentient beings to simply being meat or chicken or beef or lamb? In the sexual politics of meat, I took a literary term called the absent referent, and I politicized it. And I said that animals are absent reference in meat eating. What I meant by that is that animals disappear as beings. First, they're killed. Literally, they disappear. They disappear conceptually because we don't see ourselves generally as eating a dead cow. We call it hamburger. We don't see ourselves, not we vegans, but of the meat-eating majority. They don't see themselves as having an interaction with an animal when they're consuming that animal because they've already renamed it, reconceptualized the dead body. And finally, third, uh, the animal disappears metaphorically when we take the animal's experience and uses, use it to describe someone else's experience of oppression while not caring about the, the oppression that that made a living being uh, a dead animal on a plate. So to me, the structure of the absent referent is what allows meat to remain both normalized and naturalized because it's hiding. The violence of meat eating is hiding behind the concept of the absent referent. We've got problems with all language that participates in oppression because it sort of wants to sweeten it. It's like the way meat gets flavored. You could flavor tofu, you could flavor seitan the same way. You're, but when we're flavoring meat, we're flavoring a, a, a corpse. And so the flavor, the, the literal flavoring of the corpse is sort of embodied as well in this language change that's always moving away from the actual experience of the animal. Well, as you speak about in your book, The Sexual Politics of Meat and The Pornography of Meat, we're talking about these ways that we are socialized to look at animals. And uh, you already spoke about one of them in pharmaceutical ads. These images that we see in media, they affect our attitudes towards women. So I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit more about some of these ways that we are socialized to look at animals in a sexual manner that then grossly distorts the living being that an animal actually is to being seen as a sexualized object. I think what's going on when when uh, advertisements do this, and not just advertisements, but um, even some images, say, on, in articles. Say uh, there was an article uh, from Seattle several years ago called A Real Cheap Dish. And what it did is it showed uh, a cow uh, dancing as though uh, she were a stripper so she's the real cheap dish. So it's saying something about women and about the cow. I, I think one of the reasons that so much sexualizing of animals goes on in, in thinking about meat eating, that there's a couple reasons. One is that I think people are generally uneasy with eating animals or being reminded they're eating animals. And that uneasiness doesn't sit well inside of ourselves. It's not an acute emotion. It's, it's a sort of quieter emotion. It might lead to guilt or anger, but at first it's just this uneasiness. And 
what our dominant culture has successfully done is they sexualize that uneasiness because everybody knows what what to do with sexual images to to laugh or to um, participate in them because our culture is so highly sexualized and um, that this is one way to get attention. So uh, the minute you've sexualized uh, an animal who's representing meat, uh, you're you're taking away the discomfort of the the death of the animal and and giving uh, a different level to respond to. I think it also is participating in the notion that the animals wish to be our food. Yes, come and get me. Uh, look at me. Here I am in my high heels and my eye, my curled eyelashes, and I'm jutting out my my uh, hips and I'm, I'm big bosomed. These are sort of the, the tropes or the images that you find over and over again for um, domesticated animals who are being consumed. Come and eat me. And so it's, it's helping perpetuate this notion that, of course, the animals want to be our food. So it, what it does is it takes a problematic given about the consumption of dead animals, that they're dead and they did not want to be. And it confounds those truths by covering it with this sexual level. Yeah. You know, I think that we need to, I mean, how do we, how do we break out of the media messages that are fed to us? Right? Like I really feel it's important. I know you do as well to acknowledge and accept the accountability for what we do to animals' bodies. So being that, say, a person does recognize the sexual messages that we're being given to acknowledge animal bodies as, why would you say that animals' bodies do matter? I think that we need to step back and say that every being matters and that this false notion of self-interest that we're seeing, especially in the United States. I mean, thankfully, you all have Trudeau, who seems to uh, be a more empathetic person. But here in the United States, we are facing the absence of empathy uh, in our uh, leadership right now. Empathy matters. How we live in the world in relationship with each other is a key aspect of the question of what, what does our, why are we here and what does our life matter? And empathy doesn't stop at the human species uh, border. Empathy is something that we can practice towards all beings. Empathy is especially needed for farmed animals. They live terrible lives and they die terrible lives. For food or what some people call food, that isn't even necessary. So animals matter because they are in relationship with us, even if that relationship is hidden. And they matter because they're in relationship with each other. Whether it's the so-called dairy cow, who's only allowed maybe 15 minutes with her baby before it's taken away to be uh treated as a veal calf, that was a relationship we've broken. We have a very, what's called anthropocentric view of life, and that view is killing the planet. 
So to begin to practice empathy and see beyond anthropocentrism is a radical act that could help not just stop animal suffering and environmental exploitation, but actually help create the kind of world I think we all want to live in. Right. So I want to move on now to speak about some direct oppressions of women who actually work in the meat producing industry. And these are slaughterhouse workers. Many of the people working in meat packing plants are women, and they are women whose voices are seldomly heard. Can you tell us about the situations for women who work in slaughterhouses and what are the conditions they face? I think we should make sure that we say uh, not just women, but not in the United States, we refer to to non-documented workers uh, who are actively recruited in uh, Latin America and brought to the United States so that uh, both, I mean, both groups, and it's an overlapping group, they, uh, the challenge for them is to speak out about conditions, is to either lose your job or be uh, reported to immigration and sent out of out of uh, the country. So there is very little ability to advocate for better conditions. What we know is that the line speed continually, the line speed is the amount of time it takes to kill an animal. And then uh, what we have is what's called a disassembly line where everybody it has one place where they're standing and doing the work. It's very repetitive. So that this re- repetitive work uh, uses the same muscles over and over again. So, for instance, um, many uh, women get carpal tunnel syndrome from that. Um, also, there's not enough time to even sharpen your knife. You end up using a, a very dull knife, and uh, that takes even more muscle work. The uh, lack of, of really good health care or the fact that to miss a day of work uh, is to cost you money so that you, you don't go home and recuperate, all of this creates uh, immense pressure to just keep doing a terrible job. In the United States, the turnover rate in slaughterhouses is close to 100% a year. And one reason non-documented, undocumented workers are sought is because anyone who can find a different job will take it. So what we see in slaughterhouse work is the intersection of uh, race, gender, class, and species. Those who, who, who can get out and those who can't are, are required to um, work as quickly as possible, which means to not care about what the animal is suffering, or at least maybe care. The caring is there, but the inability to act on that caring creates another level of conflict. Well, another association I'd like to talk about is the direct connections between sexual violence against women, which you worked a lot in yourself, and violence towards animals. There is a direct correlation here with mountains of evidence that shows that some humans use violence against animals to control and sexually violate women and children. Can you tell us about this, please? So we could begin with domestic violence or woman battering. And the article I wrote about this was in 1996, Woman Battering and Harm to Animals. And I'll just say it's available now in in a new book, The Carol J. Adams Reader. But what we know is that 
batterers often harm animals, just as they'll harm children to get to or control the their victim. And so what what the battered woman faces is that anyone she cares about is at risk of being harmed. And what I did in that article was to try to talk about why batterers do this. So they do it for control, but they also do it because if a woman has been isolated, and, and this is what often happens with battered women, is that they are very isolated from others. The animal, their companion animal, might have been the last relationship they had. So to um, cause a woman to either not respond, because if she responds, the animal will be hurt more, and or so you're you're taught or you're you have to not respond to their harm, or to actually kill the animal and deprive and take away that relationship and the life of the animal is um, uh, a form of control that we know happens a lot. The other thing that often happens is that a batterer may pick up an animal at an animal shelter and then, say, a few months later, take the animal back. So that there is this constant threat that if you don't do the right thing, you're not going to have this relationship. When it comes to sexual violence, we know that uh, the threat to an animal has been used by... um, child abusers, child sexual abusers, to get the children to behave. Because if they don't, the the rabbit or the dog or the cat that's in the family's household will be injured. This is all part of the exploitation, not just of a human being, a vulnerable human being, but shows how the exploitation of relationships that that vulnerable human being has across the species barrier becomes a potent tool for more abuse. Well, I think that people can really relate to hearing about connections of violence towards women. Now, how can we recognize that parallel when we speak about the institutionalized violence of eating animals in our society? Why is the violence that comes with eating animals also unethical in a similar manner? Well, when we talk about ethics or what's unethical, my work in the ecofeminism and feminist movement has also included working around what's called the feminist ethics of care. And what we've done over 25 years, Josie Donovan, Lori Gruen, Marty Keel, and many other ecofeminists, is to take this understanding that we all live in relationships there's a sort of myth that we're autonomous beings. And this comes to us also from animal rights and animal liberation, that we're we're autonomous beings and being independent is the ideal position. But the feminist ethics of care says we move through dependency and interdependency. We are all interdependent. And once we realize that, and that these relationships are also with other animals, then a feminist ethics of care says our role is to say to others, what are you going through, and to hear their response. And we can do that with animals. Animals don't have to speak to us literally. A bull running away from a slaughterhouse, uh, like last week in New York City, is telling us something, is telling us something by running away. So the unethical nature of eating animals 
is that people decide that their selfish needs to continue to eat a food product is more important than the lives around them that are being taken. So it's unethical because it's violent. It's unethical because it breaks up relationships. It's unethical because it denies relationships. And it's unethical because it's selfish. Well, you say that benefiting from animal oppression is made easy for us all while resisting it is more difficult as we live in this flesh advocating culture. Continuing to eat a diet of meat, you say, requires less energy, less knowledge, less concern, less awareness. So how can people who support the social justice issue of feminism break out of the dominant culture to find it in themselves to also support the social justice issue of animal rights? And what would you say to a person who defines him or herself as a feminist, but who still eats animals? And I think those two things are related, that to break out of the dominant culture for feminists means that we notice what's going on with animals. But the problem is that animal rights has kind of contaminated that area of discussion. And there is a lot of animal rights activism that's very sexist. So feminists might react and say, why the hell should I care about animals? Look at all these sexist animal rights people. So they confuse uh, a part of uh, the animal rights movement with representing all of it. And they perhaps could benefit from looking at feminists who've done feminist work like The Sexual Politics of Meat and, and other books that are speaking directly to feminists. We're not saying you should. We're not saying you have to. We're saying feminism is about a liberating consciousness that believes in transforming this world. And for those of us who are ecofeminists or who include animals within our feminist theory, we're saying that transforming, transformative consciousness doesn't stop with humans. So what I would say to a person who defines themselves as a feminist but who still eats animals is there is another way and it's very liberating and perhaps think of themselves as blocked vegans and the question is what's blocking you that to continue to participate in the dominant culture's exploitation of animals is to also defeat a certain aspect of feminism so it's necessary for feminism and feminist theory to encounter animals lives and understand how patriarchal ethics and patriarchal values are being reinscribed at every meal by the violence against animals that's required to deliver meat to the table. I think that feminism exposes a social construction of reality. And once we recognize that, feminism can look at how gender has become a marker of the oppression of animals. And when we see that, we see how we've sort of been trapped within a sort of de-animalized theory. And we need to re-animalize feminist theory. 
Well, you say that the radical truth is that people can be perfectly happy as vegans. And of course, we're living in this dominant culture that can't or won't acknowledge this. But, you know, things are changing. And I'm wondering, what does a world look like to you where those who want to support social justice issues such as feminism start eliminating their consumption of animal products? Will we be living in a vegan world at one point in the future? Well, I certainly hope so. To support social justice rights through feminism and recognizing veganism means to begin at home. Begin to look at what you eat and who you eat and start changing your diet. People tell me, well, I'd be vegan if you cooked for me. And I say, well, learn to cook. We've evolved in a culture that allows the status quo to be so passive. But we know that when it comes to feminist issues, passivity is death. And passivity in the case of evolving towards feminist veganism is also death. It's not just death to the animal. We haven't had time to talk about all the environmental consequences of growing animals to produce meat and dairy. And we haven't talked about the specific exploitation of cows and chickens to produce cow's milk and eggs for humans. But to be passive is to give up on the best way that we could be alive today. I don't think we want to be passive. I don't think we want to be passive in this world at this time. I think when it comes to feminism, we recognize the necessity of activism. We've done wonderful, wonderful activism for hundreds of years, really. We, you know, the, the world is reconstructing feminist history and, and shows the kinds of protests that go back uh, beyond the second wave. And the Women's March at the end of January just showed the importance of being active. So why, when it comes to one's meals, are we suddenly passive? That, no, I can't change. No, I can't become a different eater. What it does is it creates veganism as an unachievable goal. Veganism isn't unachievable. Veganism isn't unpleasant. And veganism doesn't taste bad. Veganism is a wonderful celebratory way of living. I can eat vegan and then I can be at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport protesting the the immigration ban that that Trump handed down shortly after he was inaugurated. I can be vegan and uh, be an escort at abortion clinics. I can be vegan and work against domestic violence. This is not an either-or culture. And to assume this passivity about a very important part of our lives, who we decide to eat or that we decide to eat someone who was once a who, is to really cede control to a dominant culture, a patriarchal culture that we are attempting to reject in the rest of our lives. So I would just say vegan feminism is a very empowering act and it doesn't happen has have to open happen overnight it can be something pe- people incubate it can be something you try when you go out it can be something that you experiment with you could connect with other vegan feminists we make it seem like 
the unachievable is its own justification for not acting. But we never question why it's unachievable. I want us to start from a place of a liberated consciousness that says, as a feminist, I don't want to reinscribe a patriarchal ethics when I eat. And then radiate out from that. Thank you once again, Carol, for coming on the show today in honor of International Women's Day next week on March the 8th. To find out more about Carol's work and the intersections of feminism and animal rights, you can visit her website at caroljadams.com. And of course, check out her many, many books. Thanks a lot, Carol. That was wonderful. Have a great day. Thank you, Allison. And if you're going to be in the L.A. area anytime soon, be sure to check out the Sexual Politics of Meat exhibition, a traveling show featuring 14 contemporary women artists whose work has been inspired by the eco-feminist theories presented in Carol J. Adams' book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, which she was just talking about. The exhibition runs till April 30th at the Animal Museum in Los Angeles, California. And I've been there before. I would say check it out anyways. There's lots of other stuff there to take a look at. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would be great. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Please join us here next Friday, March 10th. Next week's show will feature an interview with Liz Marshall on her new film, Meet the Future, which we talked about at the beginning of the show. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website at animalvoices.org where you can stream past shows or download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash animalvoicesvancouver and on Twitter at animalvoicesyvr. We're currently looking for volunteers to produce, co-host, operate the control room, and help with website maintenance and social media, and more. So if you have skills and interests in any of these areas, as well as a passion for animal advocacy, please do drop us an email at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. Training will be provided. And now we'll leave you with a song. Here's We Animals by A.N.M.L., formerly known as Lila Rose, a potent reminder of how to live with and alongside our non-human animal selves. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today, and remember to be kind to the animals. 